Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Hey there, Sports History Network fan. This is Arnie Chapman, host of the Football History Dude podcast. And I'm just stopping by real quick to let you know this upcoming interview is more like a, we'll call it a fly on the wall moment between two lifelong friends, Mark and Dave, rehashing and thinking about the old times of their love for the Dallas Cowboys back in the day. And you get to be a fly on the wall listening. Like I said, this is a, this is a different type of episode for yesterday's sports. It's not the narrative base that you normally have, but I hope you enjoy. And before we get into it, here's a quick little promo for all the books that we have on the Sports History Network, including Mark's books. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football, Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s, Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports, Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories, and Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. <laughs> it's funny that he remembers it, but uh, that was a big thing. That was, and he was at the camp. But we did go to that that uh, theme park. I don't know if it was Universal Studios. Or it was one of those, and the DeLorean was parked out in front. I have, I have some pictures of it actually. <laughs> now that'd be awesome to see those whenever you get a chance. I I'll, I'll should... send them over to you. Yeah, I, I, it's the. You mean it's the actual DeLorean they had in the movies, not think, just like I, replica. I, I think it was. It had the Back to the Future like logo behind it. So, uh, I don't know if they had just one, or if they had more than one. You know, it was like Superman. He had three costumes actually. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so I don't. But it was there. The car was there. I'll send you the picture. I have the picture. <laughs> yeah, just like the other some of the pictures you sent me already too, which is going to end up getting into what we're doing here. So I started recording just to let you know because of uh, you looked. It sounded like you were about to go into a good football story, and then of course it was Delorean. But it all ties in for our love of everything that we have. I mean, if if you want to get started, we can, or I can just kind of hold off and we can we can start recording after you guys are getting no, started. No, Mark, if you want to tell them. Uh... Because Mark contacted me. I guess Mark heard me on the radio. You want to tell him that story? Yeah, well, this was probably around, uh, I'm, I'm going to say it was probably around 1993. Hard to believe it was that long ago already. I was working a uh, second shift on my job, and I was, you know, I was working a lot of hours. So I was, a lot of times I would be leaving work at, like, all kinds of crazy hours, like one o'clock in the morning. So I'm driving home from work and it was about a 50 minute drive. The job I had at that time, 50 minutes to my house. So, you know, I, I needed something to entertain me. So I would turn on the sports radio WFAN, which I didn't really listen to that much, except at that time uh, at night because I liked the host of the show, Steve Summers, because he wasn't like the, you know, he didn't take sports too seriously like the other guys, and he had a great sense of humor. So I'm listening to him, and he's doing all his, his shtick. He's, he had a very good sense of humor. And then he started taking the call, you know, taking calls. So he, I heard him say, okay, uh, the next caller up, we have, Dave from Waterbury. So I'm listening, and I hear Dave talking about all these old Dallas Cowboys from the 1960s, 1970s. <clears throat> He's naming the college they went to, what number, 
what number jersey they have and what year they started. I thought, wow, I, I, I thought I was the only Cowboys fanatic, but this, <laughs> this guy knows as much as I do. I, I can't believe it. So I was, I was so impressed. And then, uh, <laughs> and then, oh, uh, Steve Summers would give him, uh, like a free advertise. This Carvel ice cream street. So you got to visit Dave at uh, Carvel ice cream in Waterbury, Connecticut. So I, I think he, I don't know. I must have looked up the address, or oh, we didn't have internet back then, so I don't know how I got the address. But I think I wrote him a letter and said, "I was, I heard you on the, I heard you on the radio, and I was impressed with your football knowledge and your knowledge of the Dallas camp. He said, "Yeah, you got to come to my ice cream store." So eventually, I, uh, my son was probably only a baby then. So I eventually it took me a while, but I eventually went to the Carvel ice cream store, and he had, you know, pic Dallas Cowboys pictures. All the walls were it was just wall to wall, you know, memorabilia and pictures. So that's how we that's how we got to know each other through Steve Summers on the radio. That's how Arnie. I got my camera on now. It's working for some reason, but. Um... You know, funny you should say that because, you know, you know all these guys, they're into football, and everybody has this. And, you you know, you know Lions fans, Ernie, Mark and I, we know Cowboys fans, but there's very few guys, and it's not, I'm not trying to be condescending or, in, you know, in any way, shape, or form, but there's very few guys that really know. I mean, there's guys that know, and then there's guys like Mark that really know. And there's maybe there's another guy I know who really knows. He's a local guy here, and when you meet him, you just know. And if it was '93, I, I that was about three years into Steve Summers or four, and we'd kind of become friendly by then. And I probably had already been delivering ice cream to the station when I would go down, and that's why he felt the need to. Uh, but he didn't have to do that. It wasn't it wasn't about that. He was joking. And joking about it, and he probably didn't think I'd ever come down. But then I did surprise, and it got to the point where the guys that were doing security down there got to know me. I didn't even have to show anything. And then uh, this was at the old studio in Queens before he moved to New York. But um, we would talk about. But then he got into this little routine of giving me like a guy's name, and then he wanted me to spit out as much as I, you know, knew about this particular player like you know he would give me you know Don Meredith and I would say oh Don Meredith you know people think he was the first quarterback of the Cowboys but it was really Eddie LeBaron or I would just say you know Don Meredith he said if Tom Landry was married to Raquel Welch he'd expect her to cook stuff that actually really happened <laughs> and uh you know they're just stupid stuff some of what he is he you know uh, that or somebody asked Walt Garrison if he ever saw Tom Landry smile, and he said no. But I was only there nine years. Just those were like little things that really happened, and they were real stories. But he enjoyed it, and he would he would do it because I think like he would have a lot of new guys that worked engineers that worked the board, and he would want them to hear it because he thought it was really funny. And you know when I met him in person, or when I would go down to the studio. And I would sometimes he would put me on the air in studio, and you know it wasn't the same as hearing him over the phone. Like there was, you know, I'm looking, I'm sitting right next to him, like you know, five, ten feet away, whatever the chairs were, and uh, it just it wasn't the same. So uh, I don't know why. I mean, it was good, but not seeing him, um, we had a very good, we had a lot of good chemistry. That's uh, you know, and he did not like the Cowboys. Steve Summers was from San Francisco and he grew up in San Francisco and his parents had like a little grocery store there, I think, or some type of small business. And he, he worked in Atlanta. He was actually on, he was on an on air guy. He was doing the sports in Atlanta. And then he came to New York and he became kind of a New York sports fan, but he really loved, he liked the 49ers. He loved the San Francisco giants. He told me his favorite player was Willie McCovey his favorite baseball player. And there was this odd, I know I used to watch the giants when they would come and play the Mets on channel nine here. We, you know, back when you only got a few channels because I love to watch Willie Mays. And, uh, 
it wasn't like football to me, but you know, whenever Willie Mays played, if it was on television, I would turn it on, you know, but Mark came up one time and brought his uh, son with him. And uh, that's kind of how we met. I guess he heard me and, and people would hear you. You don't, you wonder who's listening at this hour of the night. Cause summers was overnight and he had kind of a cult follow. Not I want to say cult following, but he had a following of a younger crowd, guys that were in college that were up late. And I worked at the ice cream shop till crazy hours of the night, but I never called them from there. It would always be when I would come home, and a lot of them I have on ta- I have recorded. I would have a cassette thing in the kitchen with the thing, and I had the boom box, and you could record off of it. And some of the stuff is classic. I mean, we we sometimes when my buddies come over on Sunday to watch ball, we'll put a, put a, put on some of those tapes. They'd say, and I'll put on some of those cassettes. <laughs> And we listen to them, and you, I'm going to be honest with you. Some of it's insane. Like I, you can't even believe. I can't even believe it's the same guy. Like that, I'm just talking. Like I'm, you know, it was just really, really. We had a great time. It was really. And when he's, he packed it in this past December, and it was sad. I'm going to be honest with you. It was very sad in a way. You know, I, I'd been calling the guy for, you know, since 1989, like 30 something years, and and and, you know, uh, I got in that night. And I, I never, he gave me a special number to always get it. I never used it. I wouldn't do that. And so I just used the regular number. But you had to, you had to just know that there was a delay of like seven seconds. And if you just waited and you timed it right, you would get in. Because it's it's not live like people. And so you if he's already off the phone. The phones are hung up. There were four lines to get through to. And so if you timed it right, you would eventually get in, you know. But it was it was great. It was it went and people would call me from. I had guys calling me from Cincinnati, Ohio, wanting me to go to game, come out there for a game. Uh, just just guys from uh, from different. A woman from Pennsylvania who used to travel through because uh, Waterbury, Connecticut goes. Uh, it's in between Boston and New York, and the route Route eighty four, Interstate eighty four, goes right through it. And so even some of the guys from the fan, like uh, Sweeney Murdy, he's a big a guy that does. Uh, for the Yankees updates, and he's like a Yankee guy specifically for the Yankees, and he would do games. I guess when he was traveling through, and I would get to work, and there would be a note, you know, uh, Sweeney Murdy stopped in, you know, to see you because I only worked nights at the ice cream store. I, I I didn't really work days, but it was it was quite a it was quite a thing. I mean, it was it, it was a lot. It got bigger than I actually thought. I mean, I, I didn't think anything of it in the beginning. But the amount of people contacting you and the amount of people listening was a lot more than I ever thought it would be, you know? Yeah. Plus being, like you said, over 30 years, that's a, that's a long relationship with uh, a particular DJ or what would he, we, we call the DJ that or not really a DJ, like a, a talk announcer or. He was, yeah, he was a host of the overnight. He eventually, you know, he got moved around. He had been there so long and he did get moved to days for some time, the 10 to one slot. They call that the late morning. Uh, slot, which was uh, Imus Don Imus was their he was their anchor. Don Imus was their big draw. Don Imus, a big rate that radio personnel. You might you might have heard of him already. I'm not sure, but he was very big in New York. I, Imus he had the Imus Ranch for kids out in New Mexico, and his believe it or not, his wife was from Waterbury, Connecticut. Deidre or Coleman, I believe, was her maiden name, and Imus was very big. He was he was right up there with Howard Stern. At one point, and and he went on for many years, and uh, he was the morning guy. He was on at like five in the morning or five thirty, and then he was off at ten. And then Mike Francesa was their most famous host. He came on in the, the afternoon, and he had like the one to six slot with Mad Dog Russo, who's got that Mad Dog Radio on on uh, Sirius Radio, and it was Mike and the Mad Dog. That was a very big show. And they got very big. They were down on Radio Row for the Super Bowls, and they became very big. They became nationally known. And when Summers moved to the 10 to 1 slot, I would go down there occasionally to visit them. Mike would be there sometimes, but they weren't as friendly. Russo was a great guy. Summers was very, Summers was a real down to earth guy. You, he, he just, he, he was just, a, you know, he was very open. And we just became good friends. We I would meet him for lunch occasionally if I would go down. After his show was over on the 10 to 1, we would go 
get something to eat, but he was just a very, very, very nice guy. We just, we hit it off. You know, some people you could talk to, you never hit it off. And then some guys, we just, you know, and whenever there was a uh, thing about a 10th anniversary or some kind of little booklet that would come out, he would always mention me. And he was very nice about mentioning me as like his favorite caller or one of his favorite callers. And he was just, he was, he was just a very, very, very nice guy. A lot of class, you know, he was just, just, you know, you don't find guys like that too much anymore, you know? Well, someone that you do have another relationship with, with is Mark, and he has that uh, fandom for the Cowboys just like you do, but you alerted to this earlier. How how did you become a Cowboys fan way up there in the Northeast? Uh, you know, Mark was talking about this. We emailed each other this week a little, and he was talking about the Weekly Reader Club when we were in grammar school. And we're about the same age. Mark is like, what, Mark, are you two years younger than me, I think? I'll be 60 in March. Okay, I'll be 63 in uh, November. Oh, um, we're close. So we're close. <laughs> and I think, I mean, I didn't, the, it, through that weekly reader club, I ordered this book. It was called Championships. And when I ordered it, it was up to date. So, I mean, the last games they had in there were, uh, it was the Cowboys championship game against the Packers. In 66, and then the ice game in 67. I think the most, I think it was 1970, the Chiefs played the Vikings in the Super Bowl. And that was the most, that was on the cover of the book. So that's when the book was published. And those were like early books for me to read up on history, you know, but they had a star on the helmet. I think the a uniform tracks a lot of young kids, you know. Uh, they had Bob Hayes, he was the fastest human. You know, there was a lot of <laughs> just, you know, Stuff and then you know my father worked in New York. My father worked in. Um, they were building like an an elderly like one of these things for the elderly. We have one here in Southbury, Connecticut. It's called Heritage Village. This one was called Heritage Hills, and it wasn't in New York City. But it was in New York State, about an hour and fifteen minutes from here. And so when he would bring he would bring newspapers home from work, and there were always the Daily News and the Daily Post and the New York Post. And the pictures in there were really good, you know, compared to like my, my newspaper, the local, which I was a paper boy. And the, they didn't have like the, but the news, because the Cowboys played the Giants twice a year. And so you would see these pictures that you weren't normally seeing. And it was hard to get a lot of information back. The Mark will attest to it. Oh, unless you had football cards, you might not even know what a guy looks like. You didn't have all these shows and guys, pregame shows and stuff with their helmets off. It was unheard of. And so when, you, you know, I saw a picture of the defensive line. Ooh, look at this. Bob Lilly, George Andre, Larry Cole, you know, Jethro Pugh. The, 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 and I was like, wow. And I cut it out. And it, <laughs> I started putting scrapbooks together. It was insane. I have them downstairs right now. I, I still have them all. And uh, I did a scrapbook from, from about 68 all the way up. I think I stopped. In the in the late '90s, it's probably the mid '90s after the Cowboys went through that '90. They had that uh, you know dynasty, the little dynasty they had in the '90s, and I just started running out of space and stuff, and in in you know your priorities change. But I did. I kept it up for a long time, and just getting stuff and pasting them in, you know, and and, and it was a lot of fun. And you know, you learn a lot more because you're looking at these things and you're they're on your in your mind, they're etched in your head. And I think you remember stuff. I remember stuff further back. I don't know. I don't know about you, Mark. Do you remember stuff further back than the recent stuff, or no? Uh, like you mean nineteen sixties? <laughs> yeah, like you wrote the book. And so, oh yeah, sixties yeah. and seventies. Yeah. Uh, well, I started. I probably started really watching around nineteen sixty nine. But my brother, he's probably. Uh, maybe a year older than you. So he uh, watched that ice bowl game and that's really what made him become a fan. And then uh, shortly after that, I became a fan. So around 69. And like you say, you know, my brother's favorite player was Bob Hayes. My favorite player was Bob Lilly. So, you know, and the uniforms. So uh, everything is just like, you know, it's like you said, it's like we lived the same childhood. The uniforms, 
were a big attraction. They had the best uniforms. They had Bob Hayes. They had Bob Lilly. And uh, they had a good team, but they were the team that couldn't win the Super Bowl. It took them, what, five? They lost five years in a row. That's right. And then finally they beat the Dolphins. Yeah, that's right. And the three of those five years, they were better than the Browns, those two years they lost in the playoffs to the Browns. Yeah. And they were better than the Colts in Super Bowl five, And not because we're competent. They were just a better team. Even with Craig Morton, at quarterback, who I was, thought was terrible. You know, that was one thing about Tom Landry, I thought. He was a very – he was really set in his ways. I mean, his great – he was a great innovator as a coach. He was uh, – you know, they talk about coaches today. You know, Bill Walsh was was great with innovating, and, and there's maybe some guys to a certain extent today that are doing it. But Landry really, I mean, you, Pat Summerall, the great announcer, he talked about how Landry was the first one to show him, you know, turn the laces away when you kicked. He was a kicker, Summerall. And Landry was coaching the Giants then. He was coaching the defense, but he was – Landry could punt. He was a punter. And he said, do this, and, and Summerall was a kicker. And so he said Landry helped them with a lot of things that, you know, were never even written about, uh, you know. But as far as rotations on the ball when you punt and, and all kinds of different things. And But he was stuck in his ways, and he thought that a guy had to have a lot of experience before he could step in, especially quarterback. He thought, like, the minimum was three years. And so Staubach was there. He was pining away on the bench over there for a couple of years. And, you know, he missed those four years with the Navy. By the time Staubach really started playing, the guy was almost 30, really, if you think about it. That's right. And then he missed pretty much, uh, he missed uh, the 72 season, uh, <laughs> messed up his shoulder, right? He was pretty much out the whole season. Yeah. So See, really. not a lot of guys would know that. Mark knows that. <laughs> uh, he, he he did. He got hurt in a preseason game by the, a Rams linebacker, hit him hard, and he separated his shoulder and when he did come back that 72 season, that was that crazy come-from-behind game against the 49ers out in Candlestick Park where they scored like two touchdowns in the closing minutes. He hit he hit uh, Billy Parks, and then I think he hit Ron Sellers. If, you know, but uh, they got the ball back on an onside kick. Mel Renfro, I think, recovered an onside kick. And... Uh, they drove down again. Staubach came in late in that game. The Cowboys were getting killed. And 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 they ended up that was the first of his big time comebacks, I think. And the following week they got destroyed by the Redskins. I think sometimes when you have a really high emotional game like that, I think even teams today, the following week sometimes you have a tendency to come out flat. But uh that 70 season they should have beat the Colts. In fact, to get there, Arnie, they played the Lions, and they beat the Lions five to nothing. A field goal and a safety. I'll never forget that watching that game on TV. And the Lions were scoring. The Lions had a good team, and they had Greg Landry at quarterback, and they were driving. And Mel Renfro, I think, had an interception mark towards the end of the game. Is that correct? We actually just did that podcast yesterday, Arnie. <laughs> Me and Arnie did a podcast about that game. I think they they took uh, Greg Landry out of the game because he right. wasn't having a great game, and they put He's in right. Bill Munson. And yeah, yeah Munson. They were, I think they were down to like the twenty nine yard line with about a minute to go, and it looked like you know we're in trouble here. But then uh, Bill Munson threw a high pass. Uh, Renfro intercepted it, saved the day. He's right. He's right. Mark's had a great. He's got great recall. <laughs> and uh, the Lions, though, had some good guys. They had a couple of good running backs. They had a guy named Elty Taylor. He was very good. And they had uh, a very good tight end. Uh, it might have been Char- Charlie, was it Charlie yeah. Sanders. Charlie Sanders, yeah. He was very good. Yeah. And, of course, they had uh, – was Alex Karras still there at the time? Yeah, no? that was his last game. I, I was telling Arnie that that was his final game of, yeah, his, he was of great. his career. Yeah, and they had a couple of other guys too that were they, they were standouts. And uh, they Mike had a guy Hand. Who's that? 
Uh, they had a guy hand on their defensive line who was good. Right. And Mike Lucci, the middle linebacker. Oh, yes, he had curly black hair. I remember I had right. his football card, Mike Lucci. Mike Lucci, yeah. Yeah, there was <laughs> <laughs> that was a those that was a you know, those things stick out more sometimes in the, the modern uh games. The marks tapered off on a lot of the modern stuff, but uh in the late eighties, what I did was I set up a satellite dish, Arnie. My friend was a very big Raider fan. The one we, when I told you we went out to Oxnard uh, in 86. And he had two satellite dishes because there was two bands. There was a KU band and C band, like AMFM. And he, he initially set up one for C band, not realizing that the Raiders, because they were in the AFC, were on KU band. So he set up another dish. I'm talking 10-foot, 8-foot dishes. And his father was very good at it. His father was a mechanic and a very bright guy. And he was able to set these dishes up, and he even was able to track them. You have to have them on a certain arc to get all the satellites. And come in the late 80s, we, he said, why don't we set up a dish at the house? There's a guy that's getting rid of a satellite dish. He said it got struck by lightning. I think it was some kind of an insurance scam. But anyway, the guy had the dish in pieces. So we brought the dish home. We, we set it up. And I didn't know I was going to have the camera on, or I would have all these pictures, Arnie. I'd show them to you. The satellite dish, we got it. It was made out of fiberglass. It was 12 feet, okay? And, I, and we set it up on this pole. We, it was a lot of work to set up. We had to go to a junkyard, get the right size pole, bury it into the ground. Put the We had to put the 55-gallon drum in the ground, fill it up with cement, concrete, rocks, so the, so the, so could, the pole could never spin. Because the satellite was like a sail once if the wind hit it. So it was tremendous. I started getting live feeds of satellite games, of, of cowboy games. And I think I even played some of the tapes for Mark when he came up. And I was getting what they call a raw feed, unedited, no commercials. Some of the announcers were swearing sometimes during the commercial breaks. And you could see and hear all this. Man, I got one from the 92 championship game when the Cowboys played the 49ers. I call that the modern area, even though it's 30 years old now. But those are the modern Cowboys to me, kind of. But that's my favorite game of the modern areas, that 92 championship when they were going to go out to the 49ers out there and lose. They had Rice. Young just took over for Montana. And the Cowboys had a great year, but they were expected to lose to the 49ers that day. And the Cowboys beat them 30-20. to 20. That slant to Alvin Harper, boom, by Aikman, right on the money. That clinched the game. But that game Madden was doing with Summerall. And Madden, <laughs> I got him on before the game, and he's talking about how you can't have anything over the monitors because, you know, you can't see the field. And all this stuff is coming through on the satellite dish. And then he starts swearing because one of the guys wasn't listening to him. He wanted him to clean off the monitors and stuff. And so it came – it was it was great. And, and you would get the – announcers take on things during the commercials because they wouldn't break to the commercial. And so you would hear the guys talking. What are we going to play back when we come back on the air, you know, live? What are we going to? And so it was really, that opened up a lot of new things for me. I could watch the Cowboys were in three of the next four Super Bowls. And so I would turn the game on early and I could get all these live feeds Four or five different feeds on the field and in the locker room, and it was almost like being at the stadium. It was the next best thing, actually, and it was it was great. I, and I, I used that dish till about two thousand and three, and then they started scrambling everything. And then the NFL signed a contract with Directv, and you had to get the little dish to get the games. And uh, but that little dish, that Directv. <coughs> wasn't as good as it wasn't as clear as my big satellite dish because it had to travel three times as far. My satellite dish, I was getting them directly off the satellites and I had a real good receiver at the time. I had the best receiver they had made back then. And it was just, it was a tremendous crisp picture. And even the tapes that I made, I eventually uh, burned them onto DVDs. They're very crisp even to this day because that feed was so good. You know, so we had a lot of fun with that. My, my buddy Ray and I, he was a big Raiders guy. He got me going on it, and it was great. It really was. It was a great experience. You learned a lot. 
How'd you even know where to like, how did, how did Ray know, I guess, to where to point it? How'd you figure all that out? Um, his father was a very bright guy and he knew a guy that was local here. Um, who was, um, he, he had a thing he could come up and he could, he could set it up like on the arc for you. It was like a little small television screen. And if you were off on one end, you, you had to be on the full arc. If you were off in the middle, you could be off on one end. You could be off on the other end and you wouldn't pick up the full arc. This guy had this thing and you could see it and the satellites would pop in and, and, um, I could remove my, I could move my dish remotely with remote control from inside the house and the dish would move. And all, and I remember some of the names of the satellites like SATCOM five and galaxy four Telstar 301. And there was 24 or 26 satellites in the sky and certain ones carried AFL games, AFC or certain ones carried NFC games, but you could find multiple feeds of these games. And some of the audio was better. And it was just a matter of moving the dish around. Took that literally all of three, four minutes to find some of the games. And uh, his father helped out with that. And this other guy up in Oxford, Connecticut, he came down and he was the one that would set the arc, you know, perfectly. But his father got it like 90% there. He was just a really bright guy and he knew how to do it. He read a lot and he knew how to fine tune the dish even when you got a couple of sparkles, there was a couple of things manually you could move and the dish would pop and those sparkles would go away. And the picture was crystal clear. It really was. It was a tremendous, tremendous picture, you know, but it was just fun. You, you know, learned a lot about a lot of different things. And when direct TV took over and they said, Oh, you can get all the games, $99. I said to myself, yeah, I was getting all the games for free. You know, so it was really, you know, I was a bitter man there for a few years. And I would, I would actually write to them and I would get a response. And it started going up. Sure, it started at $99, but then it was, you know, 150 uh, It's like 300 and something dollars now. It's insane. You know, but there's, it's, everything's changed in that amount of time. But it was, it was, it was great. It was really good. We had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, I wish we had something like that. I remember my dad, so we and we would get there's a, a a station out of Cadillac, Michigan, I think, where we'd have the blackout games if they didn't sell out or whatever. So he would get on top of the TV, you know, on top of the house with the <laughs> antenna. It'd be icing out and it'd be snow and ice and probably not the safest thing, but then yell down to my sister who would yell over to me, Yep, nope, it's a little fuzzy still, but nothing like a satellite like you're describing to be able to the live feed. That's the coolest thing that I think of all you being able to tap into the live feeds. It was Mark. Did I show you some of those games or no? Yeah. I remember seeing the satellite dish and I remember, I think we were watching the uh, 49ers Cowboys game from the, that was the 81, 1981 championship yes. game. Yeah. Yes. I remember you did show me some. You I know, remember that dish. The dish was huge. Arnie, I have a, I, there was a time where I was buying, uh, and I, I think Mark was buying some stuff, uh, that I was buying uh, tapes from people who, they must have worked at either television stations. These were feeds from Idaho, all over the country. And these guys had games that I could not get. They had games in their entirety. And one of the games was the catch game, the 81 game. The Cowboys lost to the 40, you know, the Dwight Clark catch. And, you know, when you start watching all this stuff and you start buying things and like Mark knows, when you see Mark knows, Mark, you could see a picture from the Cowboys or something Cowboys related. And immediately you will know you've seen that picture or you haven't seen that picture, correct? Right. Yep, absolutely. And you'd say there's very few pictures I can tell you right now, probably that Mark has not seen. <laughs> and and when you see one, you know immediately I, that's a picture I never saw that. Yeah. You know. And so after the game was over, the catch game, this guy must have let the thing run because he had interviews after the games. And I've never seen this interview to this day, but I have it. I have it in my thing. They interviewed Dwight Clark 
and Joe Montana together. Irv Cross was doing the interview. And he shows the catch, and then it pans back to the stu- to the to the locker room, and you can see Irv Cross. And Dwight Clark looks at Montana because because Dw- Irv Cross says to him, "Oh, and you you put it right where you needed to put it." He stands about, and Montana says to to Clark, "Yeah, right where I needed to put it." Like in other words, I really wasn't kind of throwing it away, but he went up and made. He they don't say it, they don't say it, but he's laughing, and they're both laughing. I've never seen that interview, ever seen it in my entire life. They've never shown it. And I've watched tons and tons of football over the years. I've never, ever seen – my buddies that come over on Sunday are big 49er fans. They're not even Cowboy fans. And we laugh about it. We put it on, and we laugh about it all the time. And they, it's, they've never seen it. I've never seen it on YouTube. And I have it on that. That guy made it, and I took that tape, and I rec- burned it down to a DVD. And I, I'm saying to myself, I've never seen this. And I marked it. I said, I, after I kicked the bucket – I told my buddies, here's the one you guys you want, the the, the the White Clark one. Here you go. This is it. Yeah, he was throwing that ball away. I, I still think to this day he was throwing it away. It was a hell of a catch oh, regardless. He, I mean, it, it was really, you know, as you get older, you don't, you know, you hate these players. You think you hate them when you were a young kid. Oh, that guy there. He, he, but then as you get older, you realize, you know, how great they were. Like Bradshaw, Mark, I'm sure you didn't. You know, care for Bradshaw when you were young, but then you realize just how good this guy. I, he's very underrated, I think, Terry Bradshaw. Oh, uh, I didn't like him. Yeah, like you said yes. at the time, I didn't like him, and now you look back and say, "Wow, what a player!" And the the hits that these guys took, oh. the punishment that these guys took, and they just kept getting up. It was amazing. Nope. Remember that hit, uh, Larry Cole, Super Bowl ten. Larry Cole hit him right under the chin with his helmet. Of course, today you'd be, you know, probably suspended for three games, but he hit him right under the chin with his helmet. And uh, I think it was probably like the last two minutes of the game. Bradshaw uh, did not play. He had a concussion. From that he's day. right. Yeah. He's remarks got tremendous, tremendous Terry, memory. Terry Hanratty had to take over <laughs> uh, the last two minutes. Yeah. That's right. They showed, they showed, uh, Bradshaw on the bench. Yeah. Uh, and he, even Super Bowl thirteen, Mark Bradshaw hurt his shoulder. Yeah. And there, yep. there's a clip in that game. If you want, that whole game is on YouTube. You can watch it. And there's a clip where they're shielding Bradshaw from the press, and Bradshaw is actually in tears. Right. He's on the bench. It's after he threw that long touchdown to Swan. Yeah. And he's actually crying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but then you realize how good these guys, I, you know, for that reason alone, I could never make Tom Brady. They talk about Brady being the greatest of all time. Horse, horse crap. This guy didn't take any of these shots. Look, this guy, this guy hardly even got hit. I'm not saying Brady, Brady isn't tremendous, but the game has changed so much. And I mean, you can barely breathe on these guys. You can't hit them high. You can't hit them low. You can't hit him near the knees. You can't hit him too late, even a second. These guys were taking tremendous punishment. Staubach, Bradshaw, Brody, all these quarterbacks back then, you know, all, all, all of them, the LaMonica for the, you know, Kilmer, Sonny Jurgensen. These guys, it's it's, and, uh, Namus, it's, not, Namus it's took, not even close to being the same. Namus took some tremendous punishment. Oh. He had a bullseye on him. He did. He had bad knees, and you know, Namath's knees weren't all that great coming into the NFL. And then he had those braces on his knees, and he just, you know, a lot of people say, "Well, Namath." You know, speaking of all these guys, I just want to say this before it escapes me. I saw the class of inductees that are going into the Hall of Fame this year, and it, it was. It, I thought it was very, very disappointing. I mean, there's guys that are not in that are very worthy. All of all teams, and they have this class going in now, and I'm thinking of these guys, and I don't know. Did you see the list, Mark, or no? I think I saw it. I, I don't even pay that much attention to it. Because they let these – now they let, you know, the, the modern players in so quickly. And years ago, even a, a guy like Herb Adderley, who was one of the best defensive backs ever, I think he had to wait for like 10 years before they let him in. But now they just oh. usher in very quickly. The the modern players seem to yeah, do that um, very quickly. 
Leroy Butler, okay? He's what he's one of the guys going in, comes to mind. I mean, when I hear that guy's name, do I think of the Hall of Fame? Like, you know, when you hear Leroy Butler, do you say, boy, that guy was really he was tremendous in his era. Nobody could stop. I'm thinking to myself, Tony Baselli really is the only one I thought that really stood out to me. I mean, I saw that class, and I've been to the Hall of Fame, uh, Arnie, a few quite a few times. Um we got to the point where some of the guys were remembering us. Willie Lanier would from year to year because we were going so often. There were guys getting inducted that we liked. Between my friend Ray, the Raiders, we went to the Al Davis when he got inducted into the Hall of Fame. Al Davis, and they had this tremendous party for him. And at the time, Canton was still small, uh, Canton, Ohio. You could go there, and. Uh, you know, pretty much all of the festivities were pretty much all in the same place. There was only one or two hotels that were large enough to host these things. And and uh, and we were able to get in with a lot of the players. And I had a lot of big-time camera equipment back then. And I had some passes made. I knew a lot of guys that worked at the newspaper. And I had these press passes. And uh, it would really get you into anywhere. And I had... I had a bunch of Nikon cameras because I'm into photography. I had a lot of really impressive equipment, like a Mets flash that was off the camera. And, you know, it was just, it looked, nobody was going to question anything. And we just made the rounds, me and my buddy Ray. And we've got pictures. I've got, oh, I got, he, I got him with all these Raiders, tremendous, you know, Lester Hayes, John Madden was there, LaMonica, uh, Kenny King, Clarence Davis. Uh, Dave Casper, all the Atkinson, Jack Tatum, all these guys that were at this party for for uh, and one of the guys was so impressed with my buddy Ray, he said, "Why don't you guys come in?" They took us right into the thing, and they had this big ice sculpture. It was made out of it was of the Raiders shield. It was in the middle of the room. I got pictures of all this stuff, Arnie. I could send them to you, and uh, it was just, you know, we weren't. <laughs> We were in our glory, and there was a guy. I don't even know who. He was a doctor, and he was there with his wife. He was in the lobby, and I, I can't remember his name. My buddy Ray might remember, but he was getting a kick out of how we were corralling all these guys because my buddy Ray wanted to get pictures, and I had one of those autograph balls with the white panels, and I said, Ray, when, you know, when I'm taking the picture, just have him sign the ball. I got a ball here with about 39 Raiders signatures. I'm not even a Raiders. I said, but he was getting it signed while we were taking the pictures. And I made the great part about it is I, I saved all those pictures. Obviously they're in books and they're all in chronological order of all these trips. And I started scanning little by little. I started scanning pictures into my laptop and I could clean them up and touch them up. Good. They actually look better than the actual photograph. And I was sending them out to my buddies especially my buddy Ray, stuff that now we have, you know, saved. It's not just a picture anymore. He could he could show people on his phone and stuff like that. So it turned out to be, you know, it's it's a lot of work, but the guys enjoy it so much. It's, it's well worth it. You know what I mean? And plus, I like doing it, so it really isn't work. But uh, there was a lot of guys that we met. Some of them weren't too nice, but mo- for the most part, some of the guys were really, really good guys. You know, I always – I remember Ray Nitsky. He was he he was out in the parking lot one night. We corralled him, you know, before the crowds. Because you know, once somebody would see you stop a guy, it was like ants on a piece of food. Before you know it, there's thirty people around. They don't even know who the hell the guy is, but they're there because they know they can get an autograph. But they don't know it. We would see like my buddy said, "Oh, there's Pete Banizak. He was a running back for the Raiders, not a big name player, but my buddy, you know, because he knew all the Raiders." And I says, well, let's go. And we corralled him out in the parking lot. He was he signed the ball. You know, we got some pictures with him. And I said, Pete, do you remember whoever hit you the hardest? You know, and he says, yeah, my wife, he says to me. <laughs> but I mean, these were just great guys. It's just, you know, they were, they, and you know, some of the guys, and they would say, thanks for remembering. Because like there was a couple of ba- offensive linemen that played for the Raiders, Mark, you know, they had Shell and Upshaw, but there was a couple of guys that were very good playing behind these guys. That's that right. could probably start on another team, right? Yeah, that's right. My husband. And that's right. And my buddy said to him, oh, George Beeler's over there and another guy. And he goes, well, you guys, you must be a big fan. He says to my buddy, ready to know us. And so the guys knew 
you know, they were really in tune, you know, and, 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 you know, this, they would talk about the modern players holding out for back then. It was like, you know, 1.2 million, which is nothing that he goes, I played for 40,000. I played for even, I don't know. Mark, do you remember talking to Bob Lilly at that card show? I sure do. I still yeah, have Mark, that picture. Yeah. Mark's, that I was his favorite player. I remember uh, all he wanted to talk about was photography. You, He's correct. Uh, Bob yep. Lilly and you both had the same interest. I think that's actually what he does for a living since he retired from football. He has a website, uh, photography. And he's he's looking right. For one, I remember he was looking for one particular picture that he could never find. That's right. Something to do with a Cleveland Municipal Stadium. Mark uh, has got exactly right. There was a certain uh, picture. He, 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 Lily got into photography, and I got into photography, but I was still shooting film right. at the time. And I shot film right up until about four or five years ago. I bought my first digital camera, but I, I was doing landscape photography, and Lily was doing landscape photography. And I'm thinking to myself, here's this guy. You know, you, he was my favorite player also. And here's this guy. You were running around in the back, backyard. You were Bob Lilly. And now you're not even talking about football with him. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's 40 years later, and the guy's talking about taking – so he wanted to get this picture of the Cleveland Browns, and he did. He had it at his house, but he was talking about making multiple copies of it for his teammates. And there's an interview with Bob Lilly. I, 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 gotta, I can't mark. I'm going to find it, and I'm going to send it to you. And they're interviewing him at his home. And you could see the picture in the background, and they're covered in mud. Right. And it was one of, I think it was one of those games that they got beat. Was there a game that they beat the Browns like six to nothing or lost to the Browns six to nothing? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it was eight to two. That, eight to two. I think that was a regular season game. They beat them eight to two. And then they played, I think, three years in a row, they played in the playoffs. They won the first one, and then the next two years they lost. It was a very muddy field, Mark, whatever this oh, picture yeah. was. This and I said to Lily, I said, you know, if you take this, if you don't have the negative to this picture, which he didn't have, you could take this somewhere and you could get it professionally scanned, the whole picture. And from that, once it's scanned, you could do anything with it. You know, so I don't know if he ever followed up on it, but uh, I, he does have a website. And you could go on there. It's called Bob Lilly. Uh, it's his gallery. If you type it in, it'll come up. Bob Lilly photographs. Um, it'll lead you to it. Um, and he's been to a lot of the places I've been to. His, his equipment was probably maybe a little better than mine because he, he probably had a little little more money to spend. But um, he was very, we talked about it, shooting pictures off of a tripod, you know, shooting all your pictures off of a tripod with a cable release. So you're not even touching the camera, you know. In fact, there's a picture I have behind my head, Arnie. That's a uh, you could see. It. There's like a barn. That's a church. That's out in Wyoming, and that's on metal. They put the pictures onto metal now. And I took that out in uh, Grand Tetons National Park one year. But you know, it's funny. I saw Lily recently. He's starting to age, Mark. Have you seen him recently? I have seen him. He still looks good, but you could tell he's he's getting up in age. Yep, he does look good. You're right about he looks that. Looks healthy for his age. He does. He's in his 80s. Yeah, and he showed up for that ring ceremony. Um, I think I sent it to you. Where uh, Cliff Harris, the the safety for the Cowboys in the 70s, he just got into the Hall of Fame. Arnie, he's one of these guys that Mark talks about that took forever. This guy was a great player, and he just got into the Hall of Fame two years ago. And so they had a ring ceremony because he got his ring and Jimmy Johnson got into the Hall of Fame and Drew Pearson got into the Hall of Fame all within the two years. So they had this ceremony at, at uh, Cowboys Stadium and they trotted out all the other Hall of Famers and Lily was one of them. I think, Mark, the only one I didn't see there was Chuck Howley. Oh, really? Yeah, Chuck Howley. I didn't see, I didn't see <sighs> him. And I remember there was an event and Chuck Howley was in a wheelchair. Yeah, he, he's pretty old because he. I think he started his career in the fifties with the <laughs> Chicago Bears. Maybe Mark 50, knows. 50, Mark 50, knows. 
1958. You're right, Mark. 58. Yep. Started with the Bears and messed up his knee and uh, didn't really play. You know, after he messed up his knee, the, the Bears just released him. And then I think he started probably 60, 61 with the Cowboys, right around the same time as Lily. Yeah, He's right. He's right on the money. Chuck Howley, number 54, the original number 54. Chuck Howley, unbelievable. And Chuck Howley, Aaron, he's a guy that should be in the Hall of Fame. You could pull up his stats. Or you could look at his fumble recoveries, his interceptions. And then there's not much for a linebacker, but there's tackles and there's all pro seasons and pro bowls. Actually, all pro seasons. Yeah, pro bowl seasons when the pro bowl meant something before the fans could vote on it when you were just voted in by your peers. But Chuck Howley, it marks right, 58, he tore up his knee, and he ended up going back to West Virginia. He, he was a five-sport letterman in West Virginia, and he bought a gas station. They called them filling stations back then. And Chuck Howley was running this gas station, and he got a call from the Cowboys. And, you know, my knee, my knee feels better. I'll come back and play. The guy played 13 years. And he's the only player ever to win a uh, uh, MVP and lose on a losing team in a Super Bowl. That's Chuck Howley, and he should be in the Hall of Fame, not because he's a cowboy, but you know you get to know these players because they're on your team. And 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 and, and Chuck Holly is one of the guys that should be there. And uh, and he was just he was a tremendous tremendous player. And there's a guy who did his his name is Elliot Harrison, and he's on the NFL Network. And he's a football historian. He's very, very good. And he did the Cowboys top 10 one year. I have You could go on YouTube and find it. There's a little thumbnail of Randy White, a picture of Randy White. And it says Cowboys top 10 best players. And he, he because the NFL Network did one, but they included Tom Landry. And he's not a player, you know, but they had Tom Landry as the number one Cowboy. So Elliot Harrison did his own top 10. And he had Bob Lilly as the number one, Mark, yep. over Roger Staubach, which a lot of people would disagree with. But Lilly, look, they entered, Landry has it. You can find it right on a, uh, where they Landry, and there's a, a video of it. Landry calls him the greatest player I ever coached. And he coached them all. Yep. So he would know. And he says Lilly was the greatest. Uh, his peers would watch film. And they they were ooing and awing in the film room on Monday when they would watch a game, and he was really the only. Sawback was the most popular, you know. You could go either way, really, if you had to say okay. And he was a great and like like Larry, uh, one of the guys from the Vikings said it once. I think it was the one of the linebackers. I tell my kids I'm proud to say I played against Roger Sawback. It's you know it's you just universal. He was just a great guy, and he goes I don't. And Larry Cole even said it, you know, the tackle for the Cowboys. There's not too many – I don't know a single guy that didn't like Roger Staubach, you know, even from other teams. But he, Elliot Harrison has Lilly as the greatest. And then he goes into an honorable mention, Mark, and he talks about Chuck Howley. Right. And he said Chuck Howley is probably one of the most overlooked players on any team for the Hall of Fame. And it's on that – I'll send you that video if I didn't send it to you. I'm going to click – I'm going to click on this button. <laughs> I'm afraid to do it, but it says share screen. You know what that means, Arnie? Share screen. If it's share screen, yeah, go ahead and share it. That means that it's sharing your screen on on the thing for both of us. All right, it's it's not that important. I'll figure it out. Okay, we'll do it on the next time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we have a lot here as is. We have, you know, I I can tell you just listening to you and Dave speak, Mark. I can tell you got a. You guys are old time buddies that you guys re- re- recall, and I could see you guys both sitting there at at the car at the Carvel ice cream shop, just reminiscing cowboy stories and such. Mark, what was your go to ice cream when you went there? Oh, chocolate, absolutely chocolate. I always go for chocolate, and I think my son at that time, my son, believe it or not, Dave, is going to be twenty nine in May. At that time, he was just uh, probably like three years old. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> he, Mark, how, whereabouts in New Jersey were you I was at the in, time? Uh, at that time, I was in Rockaway, New Jersey. That's so up you, near, uh, 
that's kind of like halfway. I was kind of like at the halfway point in between New York and Pennsylvania. Yeah. Okay. So you were a good three hours, or two, maybe two two hours, two and a half hours from me, right? I think probably two and a half hours, yeah. Yeah. About two yeah. and a half Mark hours. Yep. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, somebody hears that he's, you know, he was, he was interested enough to drive all that way, Ernie, you know, to come up. But uh, I have, we, we still email each other. I would send Mark, but I haven't seen Mark in, I don't know how many years, Mark, since that show when we went saw Lily. That's right. That was probably around at least 20 years ago Probably I think it was two, I think it was 2003 or 2004 yep close uh, to 20 years the show was down in New Jersey uh, Arnie and I, I drove my buddy was really into cards and I, I, I had a lot of cards and stuff but I stopped collecting when they started getting crazy with it you know I, just like anything else you go to these things you see these great players and then the people themselves kind of, you know, look, if you want to get a card autographed, don't start bringing up 15 or 20 cards. These people get crazy. And then before you know it, they're ruining it because these guys, it turns into, you know, and no wonder they don't want to talk to anybody, you know. And now today you can't even get near the players, not that I care to anyway. But back then the players were really accessible and you could talk to guys and even – uh it was just a different thing. I, I I was coming home on a flight one time, and there's a guy that's got a uh, – he's pretty famous, Arnie, and he's got one of these things on the TV. He uh, Skip Bayless, he was an author, and he's a writer for the Dallas Cowboys, and he's, he's got a lot, quite a few books written. And a lot of the stuff he talked about, he liked to talk about controversy because controversy sells. And I saw him sitting in the seat. And I said, you know, I read your book, uh, Boys Will Be Boys. It was uh, it was on the 90s Cowboys and all the problems that they had. And guys, the crazy stuff they were doing off the field. And, you know, as soon as I said that, he, he said, where are you from? And I said, Waterbury, Connecticut. And I said, well, I'm flying home from the game. And he goes, what do you think of this and that? And I forgot what game it was. I think it was, uh, I think it was like 2000 and it was, I think it was 94, actually. The Cowboys played the 49ers during a regular season game, and that was the year the 49ers won the Super Bowl. They went out and got all these players just to beat the Cowboys. And the owner of the 49ers tells the stories to Bartolo. We can't happen. The Cowboys beat them two years in a row in the championship game, 92 and 93. And he said to the general manager at the time, we can't let this happen again. So they went out and got all these guys, Bart Oates, Toy Cook, they got. They took Ken Norton from the Cowboys, the linebacker. They picked up Deion Sanders. They picked up about ten free agents. I'm not even exaggerating. You can look it up. And they ended up beating the Cowboys in the championship game that year. Mark, were you still watching back then or no? Ninety four. Thirty eight twenty eight. Thirty eight twenty eight. Mark knows turnovers. They there you five three turnovers already in the first five minutes. They went behind twenty one zero. Right. Right. Twenty one nothing already. And so Barry. Barry Switzer, he was kind of a little crazy. He took over for Jimmy Johnson, but I always liked Barry Switzer because he had a great sense of humor and he seemed like a dead, but he wasn't good for the Cowboys at that point in time. Uh, they were like a well-oiled machine and very, Barry Switzer was very lackadaisical in his coaching style and Troy Aikman did not like it one bit. He was a perfectionist, Aikman. And Switzer tells a story. I called the guys up on the sidelines and he goes, you know, there's one good thing about being be behind, you know, 21 nothing with only five minutes going in the game. He says, you got 55 minutes to get back into the son of a bitch, he says. And so Barry tells that story. It's on video somewhere. I, I have it. I think it was, there was, they did a, they did a, uh, a two part show. The NFL uh, network has, it's called a tale of two cities. And they talked about socially and football wise, San Francisco and Dallas. And how there was just, you know, Dallas was this, you know, very red uh, state at the time. Texas and Dallas it was very conservative. And San Francisco was very, it was the opposite in the 60s. And they, they mixed, uh, you know, everything together. And they did this two-part show. It's, it's two hours. It's called The Tale of Two Cities. And that's, I think, where Barry talks about that. But Aikman did not like that style of coaching. And he, and he said to Barry, he says, you know, when you were – when you were 
in Oklahoma, you know, and you were in your third, you were driven. Now he, he was coaching the Cowboys. He was in his fifties. He goes, well, I'm, I'm that guy that you were, you know, in your thirties coaching Oklahoma. I'm that guy now I'm 31, 32. I still want to win in, it made all the sense in the world, you know, when Aikman talked about it. And he was just saying, you know, Barry was on the couch. He was out of football for five years. And so when he came back to coach the Cowboys, it was nothing like when Jimmy Johnson – I mean, they did win in 95. That goes to show you how good that team really was. They lost in 94. They weren't as good as they were in 94 in 95 as they were in 94, but they still won that Super Bowl. They beat Pittsburgh in 95, but – that was – and a lot of guys were leaving, Mark, by that time. Who had left the team by then? A lot of guys, right? That's right. Yep, a lot of guys were leaving. The, the receiver, uh, Alvin Harper. That's yep. right. Yeah, a lot of guys were leaving. Ken Norton, like you said, went to the 49ers. Right. Yeah. But if I think if Jimmy Johnson had a state there, well, if they, they could have got along, him and Jerry Jones could have got along, I think they could have won four in a row. Could have won four Super Bowls in a row. It's possible they could have. You're right. Yeah, yeah. He was very. It was very hard to lose. Uh, Michael Irvin talks about that a lot. How it was hard to lose with Jimmy Johnson. That he made things so uncomfortable for you. Right. When you lost, and Ken Norton talks about that ride home on the plane. Remember that Washington game, Mark? They lost to Aikman. The ball came out in the end zone. Yep. Yep. That was some. I think a Monday night game. And yeah, and Jimmy Johnson said, uh, 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 Ken Norton said, you know, nobody talks to you like that unless you're your father. Right. And Jimmy was going off on the plane. They didn't, he didn't, he didn't let the waitresses or the stewardesses serve any food. Nobody's getting any dinner. Okay. And so this is, he said, you couldn't lose with Jimmy there, you know, and that's, you know, when Barry came, I remember there was a story that, uh, Guys were out late one time, and they were all hung over, and uh, and Barry knew it, and he called off practice, and he goes, okay, blew the whistle, practice, and Aikman threw a threw a fit, and he said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, uh, you know, cut Mike Lurkman, you know, cut cut Emmett. And he goes, no, but you cut that guy, and you cut that guy. He goes, and you make everybody run laps till they throw up. You know, Aikman was a really Aikman was a very driven guy. You can even see it today in, in the broadcasting. He's becoming a little more outspoken. But he's a guy that's really got a handle on things, stuff that's going on in the NFL today. He'd be, I think he'd be a very, very good general manager for some reason. I, he knows talent, and he's just very much into all that stuff. And he's he made his rounds on the Super Bowl, on the uh, on the radio row for the Super Bowl. He did all those pot, he did those shows with uh Patrick, Dan Patrick, and uh, there's uh, Rich Eisen and all those guys that have those sports specials. He's got his own beer now, Aikman. Just this, I don't drink at all, but it's uh, something about it's all natural beer, no fillers, no this, no that. And you could see he's got his hands in a lot of things, and he's very, very, very knowledgeable. And that was the great thing about him when he was playing. He was a very driven Guy, he was a perfectionist. Stats meant nothing to him. He just wanted to win. Do you know what I mean? And it was, it showed up in the end. You know, he, you look at his stats, they're not all that great. And people go, oh, I don't know if this guy should need, look, he, this guy was one of the most accurate passers ever to play, not because he played with the Cowboys. I say, look, I could say Sonny Jurgensen was one of the best throwers of the football that I've ever seen, along with Dan Marino, you know, along with Joe Namath was a tremendous thrower of the ball. But Aikman was one of the most accurate guys. Pat Summerall said it many times, and he saw a lot of football, Pat Summerall, that Aikman was one of the most accurate guys. And you go back and watch those games. That's the thing about football. You can't look it up in stats, only tell you so much. Go back and watch those football games, especially even from the 90s compared to now. The game is completely – it's almost like they're playing street football. They're throwing the ball all over the lot. You know, and if you watch the Super Bowl, did you scratch your head and say, gee, why did Cincinnati stop running the ball? They were running pretty good. And then all of a sudden it stopped. And in in it just they get it's almost because like these coaches become in a trance and they're in they're in, you know in a trance with the passing game today. I don't I don't understand what it is. I have this <laughs> you were talking about that uh 
<laughs> Joe, that show we went to uh, where we met Bob Lilly, I'm looking at this picture now where we, uh, you and I got a picture with Jethro Pugh. Yes, and it's in your book. Nobody even knew who these guys were. Nobody even no, knew who they were. They didn't know. And I think, Arnie, Mark talked about it in that pot. He had a podcast. You were talking about some old-time cowboy games. One of the guys that played on the defensive line, he was from Hawaii, Larry Cole. He was like one of these unsung guys. He was just a real steady player. He wasn't He wasn't great. He was not Hall of Fame, but he was just a guy that was there for a long time, and he was a steady player, and he was good. That 1979 Cowboy Redskin game, Roger Staubach's last regular season game, Larry Cole broke through and caught John Riggins behind. And this is when Riggins was fast. Riggins was fast. Riggins was a big guy. He wasn't a small guy, a small scat back type of running back. He was a big guy, and he was fast, Riggins. He ran track in Kansas when he went to college. And he broke through, and he caught Riggins behind the line of scrimmage. They were trying to run a sweep, and they, that play went for a touchdown earlier in the game. That's right. <laughs> if not for that play, the Cowboys would have never got that ball back, and Staubach would have never had the chance to get that last-second touchdown. And, and Larry Cole couldn't believe it that I brought that play up to him. He said, I can't believe – he was actually shocked, and he was laughing. And he was he he, he was he was taken aback by it. And he goes, that's right. He goes, this guy knows. And I'm saying, you thought people – that game, that play meant everything in that game. That was the biggest play of the game. What made Larry Cole special was he could play defensive end and defensive tackle. That's Anytime. <laughs> Anytime. He could play both positions equally well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. See, Mark knows. You know, <laughs> and he was. He did. He played both. You're right. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. So my little thing just yelled at me, said I only have a few more minutes on my on my timer here for the Squadcast deal. But uh, so I'll probably have to stop recording here in a few minutes, but we can still talk a little bit about. Obviously, Dave, you have some uh, interest in speaking about the Cowboys, and I know Mark already's been for a while. So let me just. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Hello, football friends. This is Darren Hayes of the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, and I'd like to invite you to the portal of positive football history, Pigskin Dispatch and pigskindispatch.com. We talk about everything that centers around the game of American football, expert discussions, the origins of the games, the great players, teams, and coaches, and more, and some great guests and insights from experts. We have new episodes three to four times a week, and you can find us on sportshistorynetwork.com, pigskindispatch.com, or your favorite podcast provider. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast. <laughs> 